0: Welcome to the podcast of Amargo Day Community, where we are convicted to help bring the whole gospel to the whole person, to the whole world. Join us in this Sunday service as we look to the scriptures, seeking to be transformed into the image of Christ. Thanks, Gina. Um, it's crazy to come back here. It feels a little surreal. This morning I was driving down um, Sandy with my cousin and all these places that look so familiar. Um, I come back to this place with an enormous amount of gratitude, an enormous amount of gratitude. I spent 14 years of my life in this city. And um, it was 17 years ago that Rick moved here, I think, and um, was planting this church and it's a church that he planted in order to, to love and to serve the city. And, and when I met him and was talking to him about what it would look like to participate in um, being a part of a Margot Day here in Portland, um, what was really clear to me at that time is that he always wanted the church to be a church planting church. And so eight years ago, there's a man called Kyle Costello and he had been on staff here as a, as a pastor for three years and he was sent off to plant a church in Salt Lake City, Utah. And then it was about three and a half years ago that I joined him in that church plant. Never would have imagined. Rick was doing a series on being sent and I went and I was like, I feel like I might be being sent. And he's like, I was not preaching that message to you. And I was like, well, I'm hearing the message, so I'm out. <laughs> so sure enough, <laughs> It's been two and a half years, or three and a half years, and it's been fascinating. The DNA of Omago Day is the DNA of Missio Day, the church that has been planted in downtown Salt Lake. And that DNA is that we also want to be a church that love and serve that city. It's a very different city, but it's our heart and our desire to be a people that love and serve that city. So we do sing things that feel similar to what you do here at Imago. We Three times a year we shut down the service and we go and worship in our city by serving a couple of schools, Spectrum Academy and Northwest Middle School. Spectrum is a, coo- a school for kids who have autism and so they need a lot of support because their administration is taxed as they have occupational therapists and support for these kids. Another school that we support is a school um, that is predominantly refugee kids. I think there's 28 languages and 31 countries that are represented in that middle school. And so we get to be there and we do similarly to you. We learned it here, what it looks like to love Salt Lake City as you love Portland by serving schools. We're located right in the heart of the city and you can see the temple and the city center. And on the other side is kind of where um, Maybe those who are in the city kind of pushed to the outskirts. Women who are sex workers. Those who don't have as much of an income. And so there's a group of women that go out every week and they take hygiene kits. So that these women can get a sense that they're seen. That they're loved. That they have dignity. And again, the DNA is that which we learned here at Imago. We merged two years ago with another church because we believed that we were better together. We have a church that meets in the evening, the Matu church, the Burmese church that meets in our facility. It's the sense that we are a community of believers, whether in Portland, whether in Salt Lake, and we have one vision, and that's that we would be a people that love. And so as I was talking to Kyle, we both feel a deep sense of gratitude for you. For Amago Day. For the ways that you have shaped us. For the ways that you have formed us. And I was like, Kyle, what what should I say? And he's like, let them know. Let them know that 97% of people in Utah don't know Jesus. That 85% of churches that come and try and plant fail. And so he says he's told me, he's like, let them know to keep praying. Keep praying for Utah that we would be a people that express the love of Jesus in that city and in that state because we want to be a church planting church too. And so we have a heart and a passion to plant different churches all around Utah so that people can encounter the love and grace of Jesus. And so pray for us, come, come on to Utah. You just never know what might happen. Again, a word from Kylie says, we have more sunshine and better coffee. <laughs> that may be up for debate. I don't drink coffee, but but in all seriousness, keep praying for us and come if you want to. For the last year, we've been talking about the gospel and what it means to understand the gospel. And so this morning, I'm going to have the privilege of opening the text and talking about what, what is the good news that Jesus has expressed to his people. And so before we look at this parable in Luke chapter 13, would you pray with me? Jesus, I thank you for the opportunity to come back to this place that is home to me, to these people that feel like home to me, to this community that is as committed to the values and vision that it always has been to be be a people that would love and serve this city, to declare your goodness. And thank you that we inherited that DNA as people in Salt Lake City and that we belong together as your family. And so I pray today that as we turn to your word and we anticipate what it is that you want to teach us, that our hearts would be open and we would have willing spirits to be taught by your spirit today, that we'd be transformed in being in your presence with one another we pray that in jesus name amen this summer i went to my dad's retirement in england originally i from the uk it might be a bit of a tell from my accent so i flew home and i went to my dad's retirement he also turned 70 so it was a big year for him big year My entire family descended um, on this place that is very nostalgic to me. He's lived there now for those 70 years, actually born there. And it's a place that means a lot to me. And my whole family were there, my nephew and my nieces. They actually live in Peru and so they flew up from Peru. I came from the UK and family from all over. Descended on this place as my dad retired, 70 years at this place called Cape and Rain Torchbearers. And it was, this significant moment for our family. And my little nephew, who is called Elijah, he grew up, grows up, or he currently lives, in the jungle, kind of in the Amazon basin. And so, as a little 11-year-old boy, like he's just running around with his bare feet, you know, when he wants a fish tank, he has this tank in his house, he goes and he like, gets this net and he goes literally to the ukiali, which is a contributory to the Amazon, and he takes his little net and he fishes out the fish that he wants. Then he like, trucks up to his house and he like, pops them in, and he's like, yep, there's my fish. One day he was really sad because he accidentally got a piranha and it ate all the other fish. <laughs> it, was a sad, it was a sad moment. But no problem, you just put the piranha back in and you fish out the other fish, like this is his reality. And my sister-in-law, not too long ago, was like, well, you know what, he's decided that instead of fish, you know, like all small boys, you change your mind about what pets you want. So he goes and he decides he wants a boa. And it's like, all right, I'm gonna change it up, get rid of the fish. So she said he was so ecstatic that three days later he walks out in the middle of the the front lawn-esque, and he's what does he see a boa it's like perfect he snatches up that boa and he goes and he puts it inside his little tank you know this is how he goes shopping for his pets he just goes out and about in the jungle and he finds the things that he wants and he brings them in the house so these are the things that most 11 year olds read in the storybooks you know like oh the jungle how fascinating so there's my nephew running around England and he has all these little friends and he's running around barefoot and they're all like, oh, so where are you from? And he's like, I'm from the jungle. And they're all, what? He's <laughs> like, yeah, no kidding, I'm from the jungle. And he starts telling them stories and literally their minds are blown. It's like a completely other world and this kid lives in it. Amazing. It was amazing to watch these little boys interact with him. It's this totally other world. And when Jesus comes, Jesus talks about a kingdom reality, a completely other world that he wants us to engage in, to be mindful of, to experience and know. And when he talks about the kingdom, he uses parables And he uses parables for really specific reason. Because in the parables, he uses the language of our own visual reality. Because he wants it to be and feel familiar to us, his kingdom to feel familiar, not otherworldly, but familiar. So to us, if he were to come to Portland, he'd probably talk about Laurelhurst Park or Mount Hood. He might talk about the Willamette River or about warm cups of warm beverages on a rainy day. He might talk about food carts or the Macs. Why? Because he would want us to be able to understand and conceive of the reality that his kingdom is in ways that we would understand, in ways that would mean something to us, not that would be otherworldly, but that we could take a hold of it and grasp it and taste it, and his kingdom would become palpable to us. And so he uses these stories that would be familiar to our ears and to our eyes and to our senses. He wants to include us, to disarm us, and to challenge us. And so today, as we look at this parable, know that it's an invitation. It's an invitation into understanding his reality and so respond to that reality. So we'll read together from Luke chapter 13. He says this. Luke chapter 13, verses six and seven. And he began telling this parable. A man had a fig tree which had been planted in his vineyard, and he came looking for fruit on it and did not find any. And he said to the vineyard keeper, Behold, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree without finding any. Cut it down, why does it even use up the ground? And he answered and said to him, Let it alone, sir, for this year too, until I dig around it and put in fertilizer. And if it bears fruit next year, fine, but if not, cut it down. It's the word of God. And he tells this parable, which may not be sounding similar in our vocabulary, but it's like he would talk about an apple tree. You go up up to the orchards and there's this picture that something is happening and they would see these fig trees every single day. And he tells this story in a context. He begins teaching about the kingdom and then he enters into a conversation with a couple of people about the kingdom, and then all of a sudden he paints this picture. And from chapter 12 to 13 in this um, verse nine, it's this one discourse where he teaches and he's having a conversation and he wants people to understand what his kingdom is all about. And it's this conversation that he's happening with crowds that often surround him. And he's challenging the people to reorient their lives, to prioritize their time and their resources, their lives to the kingdom of God, the kingdom that he is teaching and speaking and illustrating with these parables. It's good news or gospel. And I don't know about you, but when I hear the word gospel, there are often these preconceived ideas about what I seem to understand gospel meaning. Mm. So living in Salt Lake City, the dominant religion is Mormonism, most often referred by Mormons as themselves as LDS, the LDS church. And the LDS church um, believes that they have the one true gospel. And so twice a year, tens of thousands of people descend on the city from all over the state, all over the country, and, and some from around the world. And last year, during one of these moments, it's called General Conference, we opened up the newspaper, and in the newspaper it said, from one of the highest levels of authority in the Mormon church, it was this invitation for people to come back to the gospel, come back to, the Mormon church. Their perspective defines their definition of the gospel. Being a pastor now for over 10 years, I've chatted with many people about the gospel and often there's a sentiment that the gospel, it's that prayer you pray. It's that prayer you pray and once you pray it, then you understand that you have like eternal life, but it doesn't really have any bearing now. It's another definition or understanding of gospel. I was chatting with my old neighbour. We lived together on Fremont Street up on 76th, and I just thought, well, I'd mention it to her. She is not a follower of Jesus. And I said, what comes to your mind when you think of the word gospel? Her husband is a musician, and she said, "Oh, gospel music. It's a positive feeling for her. We all have these different perceptions and understanding when we hear the word gospel. And when Jesus speaks the good news or the gospel, he is primarily talking about a specific thing. He is talking about the kingdom, his kingdom. And with that comes an invitation, an invitation to orient our lives and our values and our rhythms and our practices around the reality that is his kingdom now. Today, living here in Portland, Oregon, that's his invitation. And he's explicit in saying how this reorienting happens. It happens by way of repentance. John the Baptist came and said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then Jesus comes and declares what the kingdom is. And I think often the way we perceive an understanding of repentance, we, or the gospel, we perceive what repentance means. And, Quite quickly, we can go to the definition that, oh, we've done something bad and we need to say sorry for it. But repentance isn't just sorrow for sin. Repentance is a complete turning and orienting our life towards God. That's what true repentance is. And so, when we're confronted by the reality of Jesus's kingdom, our minds are blown and it revolutionizes our lives and it practices itself out in the way we live socially in the world around us and so jesus with these pictures and these parables wants to give us a reimagination or imagination for what it means to live related to god he wants the crowds and the disciples and us to see the nature of who he is in his kingdom and not just to see it but to take hold of it through a relational reality which requires faith and trust and dependence on him. And as we do that, suddenly, from our very lives, we're transformed. And his kingdom reality is lived out of the fabric of our lives. So in chapter 12, right before he gives this picture, this parabolic picture, He's teaching and he teaches what kingdom people are like and he looks out into the crowd and he describes us, kingdom people, those of us who are followers of Jesus. And he says kingdom people are not two-faced. Kingdom people don't say one thing in public and do another thing behind people's backs. Kingdom people don't give in to fear or control because they understand that they have intrinsic value before God. Kingdom people are not obsessed with having more and more and more and more things because they understand that life is more about the possessions that we have. Kingdom people are secure and trusting and free and because of that are generous and kind towards others. Kingdom people know how to cultivate wisdom and faithfulness. And the same way that kingdom people have a, the same way that people have an eye for the weather, oh it might rain today. Kingdom people have an eye for what God is doing in their midst. And he keeps pointing out as he's teaching where your heart is, what you love. That is what you'll give your life to. What you love, where your heart is, that's what you'll give your life to. And so as Jesus brings this message and teaches about the kingdom, it comes with a strong invitation to have our hearts oriented towards him, turned towards him. Why? Because where your heart is, what you love, that is what you'll give your life to. And his invitation is to give our lives to his reality, to his kingdom. And as he's speaking these things and teaches these things into the crowd, there's a few people who get a little bit uncomfortable. Hmm. Don't know about that. Don't really feel like my heart is that oriented towards you. As I kind of feel like I love a few of these other things more than I love you and your kingdom. And my life reflects that. And so as Jesus begins to talk about what kingdom people are like, it sounds in their ears as they understand the orientation of their heart. It rings in their ears with the sound of judgment. They understand there's a dissonance between what Jesus is saying about kingdom people and what is true of them. And so they engage in a conversation with Jesus, all of this leading us up to the parable. So they say there was some present at that very time, those folks that were a little uncomfortable in the crowd. So they tell this story about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their own. Sounds a bit um, tragic because it is tragic. There were these Galileans who lived in the north and they were headed down to Jerusalem to do sacrifices. Now, in that culture, sacrifices were what you did because you understood that living in community, you would violate and abandon relationship, both with each other and with God. And that in order to make amends or to cover that, There would be something or someone that would need to pay for that kind of violation and abandonment that would happen in community as we hurt one another, use words against one another, violent towards one another, not follow the ways of God and abandon him. And so the notion was that through sacrifice, the animal would pay. The animal's blood would spill and would cover and make amends. And so these people, they went from um, this place in Galilee and they came down to Jerusalem in order to make amends for the things that they knew whether whether conscious or unconscious that would have violated community and connectedness. And as they came either preparing their sacrifices or actually taking them to the temple, Pilate, the Roman administrator at the time, took issue with them. Probably sent some soldiers and there was a violent altercation, and these people died. And they lost their lives as they were doing this sacrificial work of reconciliation. And these people that are standing before Jesus, when they hear him, this tone of judgment they're like oh do you hear about those guys that got slaughtered on their way to the temple Mm, that's judgment for you hey jesus in this moment they feel uncomfortable and so they tell a story of comparison and he answers them Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the Galileans because they suffered in this way? It was an ideology that they believed that suffering had something to do with their behavior. Do you believe that they were worse because of what happened to them? Is that really what you're trying to say by telling this story in this moment when you feel uncomfortable? He completely rejects that ideology and he says no. Unless you orient your life towards me and my kingdom, you'll also not find life. He rejects their typical religious and cultural ideologies. You think this is about comparisons? You think that my kingdom, you have to prove your value and your, your worth based on circumstances and behavior? You think that's the story that I've been telling? He was in a highly religious culture, and when you're in a religious culture, there's a sense of self-righteousness. You have to prove. Prove your value and your worth. I now live in a highly religious culture. I drive past the temple on my way to work every single day. There are strong religious ideologies that make up Salt Lake City, and there are many people that have allegiances to that ideology and their lives and their rhythms are formed around those allegiances. The duty and obligation and pressure of perfectionism, the fear of punishment. This was all established in the early 1800s and they built a city on it. And I was talking to Kyle about this. Kyle's family is LDS, predominantly Mormon. And I asked him about it, I'm like, tell me um, a picture of what this has felt like growing up in this kind of religious ideology where there is so much pressure. And he said, well, as a kid, there was this poster on the wall, and he's like, it's pretty often to be seen in most Mormon or LDS homes. And it's this picture that basically gives you the plan of salvation, the way in which you make yourself right with God and others. And it's this caricature, but it's a car. At the bottom here, you have a car, and the car you get into, you get to choose which road you're going to go down. You have the low road, you have the broad road, and you have the narrow road. And each of those roads leads you to a tier in terms of what it will look like for eternity for you. The low road will lead you to the celestial kingdom, The broad road will lead you to the terrestrial kingdom and then the straight road will lead you to the celestial kingdom. It's the kingdom where you can actually become a God. And so Jesus's role in the LDS church is he's basically like the freeway entrance. So you have Jesus's sacrifice and who he is and what he does and that gets you on the straight road. But once you are on the straight road, there are some significant expectations that are held out to you. Morality, loyalty, tithing, duty, that you would go on a mission and return from a missionary service, that you would be married in the temple, that you would keep covenants and sacrifices, and all these things are the ways that you prove, both to yourselves and others, that you are worth being in this celestial kingdom. The whole structure is based on your ability to prove yourself and comparatively how you relate to other people, how good you are. It is an enormous amount of pressure and there isn't much space for grace. You know, and we hear that and you're like, oh, it's intense. And we may not perceive that we're doing that at all, especially because that's not part of our religious reality. But there are all sorts of cultural ideologies that we're a part of that set us up to prove our value and our worth. And we may not even be doing it consciously, but it subconsciously seeps into who we are and the rhythms that we make up our lives. What ways do we prove our value and our worth, our educational levels, right? Money, whether we have a little or whether we have a lot determines power and influence. These are cultural ideologies. Health, whether we're physically strong, independent, self-sufficient, whether we have ability. Like we prove, that's how we prove our value and our worth in our world. What job we have or what job we don't have. Whether we're socially conscious, whether we're tolerant, whether we're beautiful. How attractive are you? What you weigh? You name it. And with all of these cultural ideologies that are set up for us to prove our value and our worth, we end up feeling pretty good about ourselves or we end up living with a consistent feeling of inadequacy. I'm doing pretty good. or I'm just not quite good enough as a mother, as a father, as an employee, as a friend, as a human? Where do you fall? Where do you fall on the scale of measuring up? Jesus comes in and he breathes his kingdom reality all over that. He wants us to know that his kingdom reality is completely other than either of those. And so in this moment when they have tried to communicate that there is something about proving, he tells this parable, he gives this picture, he gives us a window of what we should know, what we should feel like as kingdom people. And this parable is set here specifically to disarm us. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, sir. Let it alone, this year also, until I dig around it and put on manure, dung. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. This tree appears useless. It wouldn't be unreasonable to cut it down. Plant something else, right? Seems logical. But the vine dresser asks to give the tree another chance. And he offers to care for it, to tend to its roots, to give it manure and dung, to revive it, because perhaps this additional care will bring fruit. The tree's done nothing to deserve that kind of care, that kind of attention. It hasn't offered any hope of change. But the vine dresser, invites the owner of the vineyard towards patience. And the literal word that is used by the vine dresser is let it alone, release it. It has the thrust of forgiveness, a pardon of mercy and the tree continues to live by grace. Yes, there's an expectation of fruitfulness, but it lives on no merit of its own. And then there's another moment in Luke further on in the gospel. We've looked at the context for this parable and now we can look a little bit further. Jesus, he's a Galilean. He's making his way down to Jerusalem. And he doesn't carry with him something to sacrifice. He himself is going to be the sacrifice. And at the hands of Pilate, his blood spills because he wants to cover and remove the stench of sin, that which violates relationship between each other and community, that which violates relationship between God. He wants to cover it. And his words from the cross were the same as the words of the vine dresser. Release them. Let them be, let them alone. It's a moment of grace and forgiveness and mercy and love. Robert Capone says it this way, the vine dresser who on the cross said forgive them comes to us with his own body dug deep by nails and spears and his own being made dung, fertilizer, by his death and he sends our roots resurrection. He does not come to see if we are good or if we are okay. He comes to disturb decay conventions by which we pretend to be okay. God has and always wants to give us everything for nothing. These people, they kept bringing it back to their old familiar ways of living. We do that too. And the whole time, Jesus is asking them to turn away from that and turn towards them because he wants to give freedom. That's what pardon and release does, it gives freedom. Freedom from duty and obligation. Freedom from the pressure of perfectionism and the fear of punishment. Freedom from identities that are set in achievement and the need to succeed. Freedom from shame and that deep sense of inadequacy. And ultimately, freedom from death. The economy of the kingdom is not built on any of that. The economy of the kingdom is built on this great equalizing moment where Jesus extends himself and offers us the kingdom. It's free in Jesus and that's good news, especially in the context in which I live and it's good news in the cultural context in which we live. Jesus's kingdom is alive with freedom and he wants that freedom for all of us. So we're off the hook. We don't have anything to prove. Our value and our worth is secure. And you may say to me, well, Heather, you've missed a bit. It's a little caveat, it's that moment in the parable where he talks about being fruitful. Does that really everything for nothing? It's kind of how he ends the parable. And so I wanna take us to another moment where Jesus talks about being fruitful. It's in John's Gospel. And he's using this illustration again of a branch and that a branch is useless unless it's connected to the vine. And then he says, I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in them, they bear much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Abide. Set up home, your place of belonging. Set that up in Jesus, and what will happen? You'll be fruitful. So in Jesus, we find the freedom from having to prove our value and our worth. We get freedom from that, and we enjoy freedom for fruitfulness. And both happen by being connected to him, being at home with him, having our sense of belonging with him. So again, we're off the hook. I, like I said, was just at home um, this summer and the place that my father has worked for over 35 years is the place that I grew up in. It's a place that um, formed me deeply. It's a place that feels You know, it's in these rolling hills, if you've ever said the Great British Bake Off, I'm telling you, that's what my garden looked like, I'm not even lying. The sheep, it's this big place where I learned about who Jesus was, I learned about what it meant to, to know other people and it's a significant place for me. And my dad having retired, decided that it was best for him to move away from that location so that the person that's taking over has freedom to be themselves. And when he called me on the phone, he called and he and my mum were very excited about having bought a new home. And I tried to be excited with them. I was like, oh, that sounds like good news. (laughs) I didn't feel excited at all, I felt sad. I felt this deep sense of loss. I'm going to be 40 next year, and I've always wanted to have children. I wanted to bring my children back to that place. I wanted them to know it, to feel it, to run around in it. Now, it will be a place that we visit, which I'm grateful for but it's no longer home. Being a home is somewhere where you belong. It's not just a place that you visit. Jesus is not interested in being a place that you visit. On a Sunday morning, on a hard day, when you remember to, Jesus is where you belong, with your whole selves. That you would orient your life around him, that you would turn towards him with every aspect of your living being. That you would orbit around his reality. And when you bring the world of your money to him, the fruit of that is generosity. And when you bring your time to him, the fruit of that is that you serve others in love. And when you bring your attitude, you become patient and humble. And when you're angry, he'll bear fruit of forgiveness in you. And when you're in pain, he will bring healing. When you're in isolation, he'll bring community. Because the fruit of the kingdom shows up in our practices. And that's the fruit of being connected to him and being at home in him. But first, Amargo Day, you have to acknowledge the areas where you've set up your home elsewhere. That is what repentance is. Knowing where your life is not at home with him and getting back to him. You may have never done that found freedom in trusting Jesus. You have the opportunity to do that today. There may be areas where you need to trust him, where you need to orient and orbit around him. You can do that today too. This is the table that we come to every single week And it is our own everyday picture of freedom and release from having to prove your worth and your value, the space that you take up in the world, you don't have to. Because Jesus' love and grace and mercy proves that for you and to you every single day. And you come to this table every week and it's an opportunity to turn towards him. To repent. And in that turning, you come to him in dependence, knowing that he gives sustenance and life. And as you entrust and orient your world around him, know that he will, through you, be fruitful. And we will bear lives that are a picture of the kingdom as we begin to be, continue to be and remain connected to Jesus. The one who proves our value and our worth through his mercy and his grace and his love and the one who bears fruit through our lives as we orient every aspect of who we are into his good care. So as you come to this table today, repent. Turn, orient yourselves around him. His invitation is for you to be a part of his kingdom reality, to be his kingdom people in this city, Portland, Oregon. Let's pray. Jesus, you have given us everything for nothing and it is ours to come to you, to be with you, to be at home in you in every aspect of our lives. So I pray for your people today as they come to this table, the everyday picture of what it means to be dependent upon you. And I pray for those who need encouragement that you would give it, for those who need to turn and orient their lives in specific ways toward you that they would do it. And I pray that each of us, Lord Jesus, would continue to belong and find home in your good company so that we can have the freedom that you offer to be a fruitful people in this city we pray it in your name amen we pray that God will use this message to strengthen your faith and draw you into a deeper relationship with himself if you're interested in hearing other sermons or want more information about the church please visit our website at www margodaycommunity.com thanks a lot for listening